Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Hey, how's it going? Oh, see, this is what he does when I, I make fun of his shit Irish accent. <laughs> you know, I'm not like some kind of a wind-up doll. Just like, you know, go out there, do the Irish accent, and then, you know, you make fun back. and You kind of are. Anyway, God let's introduce bless. our Welcome guests. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Our guests are returning guests, believe it or not. We've had a few dare to come back. It's uh, Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf from Insecurities Podcast. Uh, our yes, editors in the podcast in world. Insecurities Podcast, known as the double entendre. Very mm-hmm. clever. There. <laughs> Love <Yes>. it. They <laughs> were last on with us in December of 2020. Can you believe we've been doing this stuff? I long? cannot imagine. And they obviously, the memory has faded um, for them, yes. or otherwise they probably never would have agreed to do you it. You won't be uh, back for another three yeah. years. After, <laughs> once the next 30 minutes pass. We'll so slot quickly, you in the calendar, yeah. Bingo. Let me introduce them really quick. Chris is a CPA and a CFF, which stands for Certified Fraud Examiner. Uh, brings expertise in forensic accounting and litigation consulting, specializing in internal investigations and financial litigation. Wow. And he's a model Woo. American. A model American. <laughs> Kurt's a securities enforcement attorney at Quinn Emanuel, assists clients with complex compliance issues and government enforcement inquiries. His experience spans high stakes cases like the Adelphia accounting scandal. Don't know that one, but I do know this one, the Scott Rutstein Ponzi scheme. Very, very interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure we can ask you questions on that, but we'll see. Um, anyway, <laughs> together they offer a wealth of knowledge uh, in securities, regulation, enforcement, and they're here to share it with us and be on good behavior. And having, because I actually uh, do prep for these things and have listened to some of your recent podcasts. You know I, I edit I out your snide yeah. remarks, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you guys really are very smooth, very professional in your podcast, which we, we admire. We resent it also because it makes us... <laughs> Look, uh, we disorganized don't like you guys, by, uh, but, you know, but we, professional but we, jealousy. we have our own, we, uh, you know, we add in a lot of uh, spontaneous banter and some bathroom humor. So we we have our own uh, advantages we can offer. There we go. Well, welcome back, guys. Thank you for your welcome. bravery in joining us. Yeah. Great to be back. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. I'm only back because my last pair of socks wore a hole in the toe, and so oh, it was time oh, to sort well, of re-up, we got, right? well, have oh. we got some socks have for you? Have we got socks for you? They did, but that, it's good to know they last about three years. <laughs> about three years, yeah. 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 The hot socks didn't, didn't last as long, but the socks yeah, yeah. Are, are just fine. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we have some. We might have some hot sauce too. We, we probably yeah. got some, oh, we got that. We've got all yeah. kind of. We have beer too, but we can't send it um, in the interstate mails because mm. that violates some kind of law. You can drive over there and bring it to yeah. them. I guess we could do that. All right, let's <laughs> go with our first question, John. Let's uh, do. Uh, you, would you like me to go first? Please, please. Do. So obviously, uh, you both have incredible titles. I just gave you the, the intro, but uh, Chris, for our listeners, can you describe what it means to be a forensic accountant and a certified fraud examiner? I need to have something cool after my name. Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, Ronan, that's a good point. The cooler your title is, probably the more of a loser you are. So I think it's a a double-edged sword. So forensic accounting is really a discipline that has uh, grown over, say, the past 30 years where accounting expertise has become more and more important in the litigation and investigation world. You know, say 50, 60 years ago, cases really turned much more on contextual information than maybe the nuts and bolts of of accounting treatments, uh, at least that get the highlight today. And forensic accounting has really 
fill that gap in terms of expectations around, you know, how do you come to a conclusion about the way a journal entry was posted or estimates were were developed? We always liken it to kind of a sexier side of that CSI, right? You see the people in the lab looking at the blood spatter or, or preparing the, uh, you know, the analysis of the murder weapon. Uh, from an accountant's perspective, you know, it's the same goal, right? Is you're trying to present a analysis of financial facts that can be utilized to determine a result, a conclusion, a opinion. So oftentimes forensic accountants are called as expert witnesses uh, in cases where accounting is at issue and you're explaining to the judge or the jury, the trier of fact, what the implications of that accounting information is. Uh, and also a lot of times if you're not in the courtroom, you're helping a management team or law enforcement understand maybe the nuance of the conduct of an individual within a business or, or someone taking advantage of a business. So, hey, you know what? This seems inappropriate, but it's kind of within the pale of what we'd expect. Or, oh, no, no, this is definitely outside the lines. You can see here they signed their own name where they should have signed someone else's. Uh, and that transaction has led to them, you know, beating their EPS estimate by one cent instead of missing it by one cent, right? And that having market implications. So, and, and I would imagine that as in every other uh, area of business, uh, the technology, the way that technology is changing is impacting um, investigations and, and defense of uh, investigations as well. And probably even like questions about different forms of AI impacting those areas. That's right. I'm getting deposed later this week on an asset tracing matter where we put together an analysis of bank statements of of an individual defendant. And a lot of the questions we're preparing for are, are what systems did you utilize, right, to to prepare this analysis? It's a lot less of what happened on the statement, but how the expert got to the conclusions. And that technology piece is equally as important as what those actual transactions were. So uh, definitely going to continue to be an interesting area to focus on. Wow. Look at that. (laughs) I thought your question was crazy. As <laughs> 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 I remember from three years ago, Jay. Jay. I, I thought we were going to have to edit that because Chris was like, no, JR, that was a stupid question. <laughs> Still paper and pencil here in the accounting world. When I watch CSI, I, I think it helps me like get away with murder if I was to ever uh, kill a co-host. Me, he gives yeah. me so, so little credit. So what each of you do is clearly sort of complimentary. Do you work on the same cases together ever or sometimes? Kurt and I have not. But Kurt, I'm sure you could talk about a few examples where you've utilized accounting uh, as, as the linchpin, if you all say how important accounting is to each of your cases. But uh, Adelphia is a great example of that. Wow, that was a, I think that was a subtle dig there, Chris. He was like, you need to hire our firm more. Uh, we've tried to work together. It just hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, look, for us, I'm sure you'll all know and your listeners will know, most lawyers are really bad at math and looking at balance sheets and God, please don't put a spreadsheet in front of us. So we do desperately need folks like Chris to come in sometimes and, and help us make sense of it all. If it's really basic, we can work our way through it. But if I'm working on a case that, you know, an accounting issue is a material part of what we're investigating. I've got to have a Chris in the room to explain it to me. Mm -hmm. And you guys, so you guys have been doing your own podcast. How did you kind of like fall into that? And uh, can you say a little bit about how your podcast has evolved over time? And more to the point, do you have any advice on how we can monetize ours? Because that's really what we're mostly <laughs> I think focused has, on. Has it brought the same joy yeah. to your hearts yeah. as yeah. Fox and Lions has yeah. done for us? Yeah. Uh, from the monetiz- monetization perspective, no, we don't have any mm-hmm. advice on how to monetize because okay. we're, uh, uh, all right. well, we're, we're thankfully <laughs> attached at the hip and, and with the great help and production staff of the Practicing Law Institute who approached us 
I guess, almost four years ago now, Kurt, talking about maybe developing some content to support uh, a lot of the work that they do in the security space. So that's really how it started. Contrary to a lot of the podcast popular belief, we started before the pandemic, uh, where I know a lot of people got bored and, and took microphones out after the pandemic started. Kurt and I had idealized this discussion of financial and securities enforcement headlines to one level below what you might read in the Wall Street Journal or or the Washington Post. That commuter podcast really turned into a much more of an interview-based show where we got to dive really deep with a lot of experts in the area that I think adds a little bit more color to the context of uh, a lot of these issues than just kind of hitting on the the bullet points of what you might read in the news. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the evolution for me, the way I think about it is we intended to have more of a conversation, you know, me and Chris, like, you know, sports center for securities law. Uh, and, and it just, it didn't you, work you out. You hit the nail on the head. It didn't take. No, I mean, our, our listeners like hearing from the experts that we're able to get on the show. I mean, I think what we've had uh, six current or former SEC commissioners, a CFTC uh, commissioner. So we get folks like that on that our listeners really enjoy hearing their perspective as much as I'm sure they love ours, they'd rather hear from someone else Probably sometimes. True. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of technology and regulation and regulatory trends, so one of the uh, SEC's focus, I know you've talked about this on uh, at least one of your recent podcasts. I is, caught JR listening to one of your podcasts this morning. I, you know, I was, I, I prep for these things, <laughs> Perhaps, you know, yeah, I, yeah. again, I was, you know, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm very impressed on how professional you guys are. I'll also resent it. Um, but so <laughs> predictive data analytics. So this is the term that the SEC and um, Gary Gensler has used to talk about the use of uh, kind of cutting edge technology by brokerage firms and advisors to target individual investors at a very kind of micro way um, in terms of delivering. Can you talk a little bit about that and both the reason for the regulatory proposals around this and the pushback that it's getting um, in the industry? So, I mean, first, I on some level, what we're talking about here is artificial intelligence or AI and, mm-hmm. and how it is being uh, adapted and used by financial services firms today. And I thought uh, the guest on your last episode hit it on the head. She said something like AI is the most overused phrase in the in the business right now. Uh, there's really nothing new here. And, and you so know, you have actually listened to a few oh, of yeah. our episodes oh, as wow, regular listeners. See, see? Yeah. there you go. Oh, I love this. Yeah, that yeah, one was great. It. Uh, but I totally, I totally agreed with with that the way that she was sort of thinking about. It. You were like, "What's the next big thing we should be talking about?" And she was like, "You think it should be AI, but that's not what I'm going to talk about." And yet here we are. I, I think that all of this is still a little bit of a knock-on effect from meme stock mania a couple of years ago, right? So uh, immediately following that, we started hearing about digital engagement practices. You know how are uh, you know online broker dealers and broker dealers that have applications on your iPhone in particular engaging with investors, right? Are they sending you nudges? Are they otherwise encouraging you to trade? And it has sort of evolved from there to, okay, well, how are they using data that they either ingest from third parties or from all of their customers or from individual investors to try to make targeted recommendations or or otherwise just use the data to sell, right? How are they monetizing, right? Come back to that right. idea of monetizing. How are they monetizing the data and what are they doing with it? Are, are they creating conflicts there? Are they adequately disclosing? And so that's where I think the PDA rulemaking proposal fits in. Now, setting aside problems with that proposal, because I think a lot of people don't like it, I do think that there's... Um, 
a misperception that perhaps goes all the way to the tenth floor, maybe to the chair's office, about what firms are actually doing out there. Right? There isn't some you know mastermind computer that is going to tell Ronan exactly what ETF he needs. Right? It's trying to find a way to you know encourage him to do that. I just don't think that's how how firms are really using it. Not in that kind of way. Yeah, probably not. But clearly there is at least a potential, a hypothetical conflict, I would think, between the construct that the securities laws are, are built on uh, and uh, the concept of fiduciary duties um, that brokers and advisors owe to their clients, which are duties that are based on, you know, kind of like one-on-one kind of uh, understandings of an individual investor's needs. And how are you using technology to sort of supplant yeah. that? Um, or, uh, you, you know, because ultimately you have to, you, you have to make individuals responsible for complying with those obligations. You can't file a lawsuit against a bot. So it's not yet. Not yet. That could that could <laughs> be. Bots it. will be filing lawsuits against other bots. Well, and then the exactly, whole, the whole and then we're all going to be their bitch, you know, yeah. before it's <laughs> all done. But, you know, yeah. to, echo, to echo what Kurt talked about, the specific proposal I think is really trying to deal with that germane AI issue: is who's responsible. Right. If you're writing a novel and you go to ChatGPT or Bard and you ask them to write a novel or a section of it, you know, that content, right, is currently in flux about who's developing it. Is there copyright, you know, that needs to be applied based on the LLM that feeds that model? This to me is kind of that same conversation just applied to JR, what you just described, that relationship between advice and the individual who's taking that advice, who's giving it, right? Because for up until, you know, Skynet is invented, right? We've got kind of a one to one system, but when that happens, mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of a lot of interesting discussions before the bots uh, take over. Yeah, I, I would just want to say on top of that, like I, I think that the way it's being used it today, again, it's not the way that perhaps Chair Gensler is, fears that it's being used. It's more about things like optimization, right? And we can think about different ways that people have used different calculus over the last 80 years to build portfolios of assets. Right. We can do that in a smarter way now. Asset management firms can do that in a smarter, smarter way now to optimize different features or things, you know, that an individual investor wants. I think that's probably a good thing. Now, you know, JR, might there be conflicts there? Sure. But there has to be a better way to deal with that than by, you know, regulation by enforcement, which is, is happening. Uh, right now in the space, um, or through rules that really, I just think create compliance hurdles that folks can't get over. Mm-hmm. Let's stay with the SEC for now, because Kurt, you were mentioning you've had, I think you said you'd six former commissioners on your podcast. It's a really hot topic, specifically in U.S. equities for for John and I, mainly John. But from doing your show, how do you view the SEC's rulemaking process, and what are the implications you think that these have for like market participants? So look, I think there has been a change in the rulemaking process over the last couple of years. I mean, do we still have, you know, notice and comment rulemaking? Yeah, we do. The comment periods were shrinking. (laughs) They were vanishingly small there for a little while. And I know, you know, JR, that that would have caused you some angst because there are a great many rules that IEX will, you know, will lob in comment letters. We've started to get away from that, thankfully, because I think it's important for regulated entities and individuals to be able to participate in the dialogue. What's concerning to me now, I, I think there are a couple of things. One is, and, and I haven't always bought into this theory, but I do now. I think we're seeing more rules that are overlapping in scope or in the compliance burden that it would impose on regulated entities. And I don't get the sense that 
the staff is always imagining sort of the holistically how a suite of rules might impact a broker dealer or an exchange, right? So they may go out and do their analysis. How will this individual rule impact folks? Okay, we've done it. We figured out, you know, we had Dira look at it. Here are the pros and cons. But when you start layering on all of these, and we're seeing so much of it in equity market structure, so many rules out there that you you can't do one without looking at the other, right? And it starts to create a real problem, I think, for firms. And so from a rulemaking perspective, I think they've got to start thinking about that and talking about that a little more openly. Well, well certainly a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people have made that criticism and um, and I understand it. Um, but to push back a little bit, it's just tell Kurt he's unoriginal. You, you can't do that. No, I'm not. I'm not saying no. He put it in a, he, he put it in a very Don't heckle smart, the guests. terse. And I, we can talk I shit about them after. When did you stop heckling guests? That's true. I'll get back to heckling. Them at ease, and then we'll attack. Get back to heckling Rona. Okay. Um, Yes, I understand the criticism, but it seems to me also that people are uh, critiquing, in a sense, hypothetically, what would happen if the SEC adopted all of the various things that they have proposed adopting the form that they have proposed them. Which is to say, I think at any point that the SEC adopts any particular proposal, it needs to take into account how it would interact with, you know, what whatever else is out there um, currently mm-hmm. and, and to take account of it and then, you know, in the various interrelationships. Um, but some of this, it seems to me that um, the more resonant kind of criticism that that I think makes sense is just the pace of the proposals and kind of digesting all of them and for people to kind of understand themselves how the proposals may react to each other. Um, there's, you know, there's only so much bandwidth that any of us have to kind of like digest all of this and understand it. The burden is certainly higher than it's been in the past. Yeah, I, look, I don't disagree. I, I think what we need to see is more examples of the commission actually reacting to the comments that come in the door. And they, they don't always, right? And no, now there are examples of, I think they're grappling with the climate risk disclosure rule right now ton of comments. People hated it, right? Especially, uh, you know, with the category three emissions or whatever it is that, that people are particularly worried about the disclosure burden. They've gone away forever on that one. I don't know what they're doing, right? So in, in at least one instance, they're thinking about the, the comments, but we need to see them, I think, make more meaningful adjustments to the proposals in the final rule. And that's not always happening. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I'm just like a pregnant pause here, but I thought, do you want to take the next question, Ronan? Do you want no, me to? Well, we might as well stay on the SEC while we're in the SEC. Let's beat mm-hmm. the shit out of this dead horse. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's go on to um, enforcement priorities and, and strategies from the SEC in recent years. What, what are some of the key shifts you've seen there? I'm sure you've seen many, but all the people you've been talking to. You guys are doing Don't both of you answered. <laughs> I know. Chris, I feel like I've been taking up all the airspace. Chris, no, I love what are you I love, I love. I love Kurt's unoriginal answers coming first, and then I get to jump in uh, <laughs> secondarily. There we go. Fantastic. You almost have to heckle each other. I pause here for a reason, right? And that's as an accountant or as a forensic accountant, I'm looking at a very small subset of a broader you know, list of what the SEC is after. So to me, a lot of the priorities around the accounting world have related to the specific areas of a, of a focus on controls. I think that's something that's been relatively, I'll say new over the past few years from an enforcement perspective, 
even though those rules have been on the books. For those uneducated uh, non-CPAs out there, the controls of a business are really what are in place to make sure you're following the rules and your financial information is presented in, in the manner in which reflects economic reality. And we could we could do a whole, a whole host of episodes on that. But we're starting to see the SEC focus on that as a charging mechanism, right? Before you had to have some bad conduct happen, and, and FCPA is a great example of that. You had to have a bribe, right? And then have a control that did not appropriately limit or mitigate the risk of bribing. Uh, here, mm-hmm. we're actually seeing in the past 18 months to, to a couple of years of controls being the focus, right? Maybe there isn't specific conduct that violates a, a regulation, but the con- during an investigation, you know, it doesn't uncover specific conduct, but it uncovers a lack of systemic control around mitigating those risks. That has been a, a kind of a new flavor in the way the enforcement realm is, is focused on accounting and financial information specifically. Right. And and you obviously had at some, from, again, from the regulator perspective, I feel the need to kind of like exp- explain where they're coming from. You need to be able to enforce the requirements around the controls because mm-hmm. if people don't like, you know, maintain the control, that, that, that they're not scrupulous about maintaining the controls, then you're going to have more breakdowns um, that are, you know, so you, you can't say, well, they should only be enforcing the, the more um, obvious failures where the lack of controls then result in some kind of right. fraud or some kind of terrible financial financial misdoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll offer a little take on how I think things may be changing or the priorities or strategies is, are shaking out with the division of enforcement. I think, look, you said what's changed in recent years, crypto, but let's just put that to one side because yeah. that's a whole, yeah. that's a whole episode. It's a whole uh, episode, but uh, I do want to ask you one yeah, question. Yeah, there's a question on that. So, I mean, otherwise, I think if, if what we did was look at the statistics, what you'll find is that the, the types of cases that the division of enforcement is bringing break down along traditional lines, right? You got the same types of cases floating to the top of the list. It's investment advisors, it's broker dealers, it's issuer reporting types of cases. I think what's changing is the way that they're that they're bringing the cases sometimes and there are a few things that I think are going on one is like the division of enforcement seems to be chasing flavors of the month sometimes it's changing so quickly mm. right so forever we were seeing of course crypto but then we we're seeing spacs right now ai is the big thing and i don't know if that's because they're trying to get their arms around it and figure out what's going on with some of these you know newish or, or or new uses of old tools but they do seem to be chasing flavors then they will bring cases in clusters right so we've seen more i think um, press releases over the last year and a bit that reads something like today the SEC charged 11, 28, 42, you know, individuals or firms because really what they want is that headline. You know, maybe it's the headline that they're chasing, but what they want to say is, hey, everybody remember you have this record keeping requirement and one little itsy bitsy record keeping case nobody's going to pay attention. Right. So, but I do think they're, they're thinking a little bit more about how to, uh, how to look at cases in clusters and announce them in bunches to try to get attention. And to influence behavior, because again, from the standpoint right. of a government agency with limited resources, you're always trying to sort of uh, focus your cases in ways where people will take attention, and will stand up and notice it, and uh, may influence their behavior. The old yeah. the, the phrase, the Latin phrase, interorum effect of yeah. the, uh, uh, Correct. Uh, and I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing. Ronan's looking not. nonplussed, like what I, the fuck I is I he talking about now? <laughs> he just made that up. Yeah. I, <laughs> 
Did you just use nonplussed interorum yeah. and what the fuck in the same yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, that's what I love about this podcast. It's a great Venn diagram of language. It's like they say on Monty Python, Winks is good as a nod to a blind bat. Jesus, All right, but before we get totally off track here, you mentioned this concept of regulation by enforcement. So I'd like you to drill down, either both of you, a little bit on that. What I take from that overall theme is the concern that that the SEC is regulating in areas where they don't have clear authority or they are, or particular conduct is not clearly prohibited by the rules. So they're bringing settled in particular enforcement cases in order to sort of extend themselves in ways where, where they couldn't otherwise. And crypto is an area where people make this complaint a lot, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So with respect to crypto, it seems to me that The complaint about regulation by enforcement kind of depends on what your assumptions are about the reach of the law and the rules that exist now, right? Um, So, and and a lot of this goes back to core jurisdiction around what's a security and what does the SEC have the authority to actually police. One of the recent developments in this area was this uh, decision by Judge Rakoff, who's one of the more respected, I think, judges um, in terms of securities involving Terraform, one of the crypto issuers, where he basically said, this is a slam dunk. There's no argument here. Of course, they're securities. Um, you know, they're investment contracts and very consistent with. So kind of if you buy that analysis and come from his point of view, then what the SEC is doing in this area is not all that, uh, you know, not over their skis, not all that surprising. How do you think about those issues? There's a lot in there, uh, I JR. Was, yeah, um, I was just yeah. going to bust him for that, <laughs> yeah, too. But, uh, so, so I appreciate you yeah. calling him out, Kurt. Yeah. Jesus, man. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, first, I don't necessarily agree with the Rakoff decision. Uh, I, I like Judge Torres's decision better, which draws distinctions between types of uh, tokens and how or where they trade, right? So maybe a, a token trading in the secondary market doesn't satisfy all the factors of the Howey test, right? That's mm-hmm. what we look mm-hmm. at to see if something is a security. But something that looks more like a direct issuance, maybe it's there. Okay, but I do think it's important to kind of draw distinctions. More broadly on the regulation by enforcement point, I think the fact that so many of these cases are being litigated and that we are getting decisions from different judges that don't necessarily cohere suggests that maybe some guidance would have been helpful along the way. But the staff at the SEC and Chair Gensler in particular have just refused to give it, right? You've got other commissioners calling for it. And the refrain, uh, you know, from Chair Gensler has been, what do you need? You've got Howie. We've brought, you know, 47 or 58 cases against token issuers. We gave the Dow report a couple of years ago. What more could you possibly need? I just don't think it's been enough for the industry because at the same time, they're saying things like if you operate some kind of platform or exchange where folks can go out and trade tokens, come in and register, come in and talk to us. Well, no one has been successful with that. And yet you see the SEC bringing enforcement actions against exchanges. So I just don't think both of these things, you know, sort of can't be be true. You can't say there's, you know, there's enough out there and we want you to register, but then not let people register, not give guidance and bring the enforcement actions. 
Yeah, I understand that critique too, but it it does feel to me there's like a whole range of different people in this um, industry and kind of their orientation and what they're looking for. It does seem to me that there's probably some folks when they say they want more clarity and more guidance, what they really want is they want clarity that they are not subject to the regulatory regime, you know, kind of like generally. That's the clarity they're looking for. They're not, I mean, I suspect if the SEC did come out with, you know, very uh, detailed um, guidance on what you you have to do in order to uh, register a particular crypto token. There are probably some folks would say they're way out over their skis. They're uh, they're being too aggressive. Um, Congress but don't ought you to shut think, them down. Jr. We we do need that guidance. Like that's that's something we would embrace. Well, well yes. The question and I think the question is. I agree uh, with Kurt. How, I'm anti Jr. Right now. Yeah. No, the hell you are. <laughs> <laughs> After everything I've done for you. Um, Listen to you. Yeah. But, you know, kind of like over what time frame does it happen? How does it provide a, what's Congress's yeah. um, role? I mean, in other areas where you have emerging kind of asset classes, often the emergence of guidance and legislative changes, you know, happens over a number of years. I'm not saying that that's what should be happening here, but it's rare that it kind of like happens all at once. No, I agree with that. I think the thing that is uh, particularly troubling to folks is it feels like there's an element of, you know, they're like building the plane while they're flying it. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're trying to understand through enforcement investigations, what do these platforms actually do? How are they deciding which tokens to list and trade? You know, how should we even think about an individual token as to whether or not it's a security. And so that is largely being handled by the enforcement division because the exam staff can't get at it, right? These aren't registered entities because they haven't been allowed to register, right? But then on the other side, we're just, it's like that information isn't filtering through to get some kind of meaningful guidance or rulemaking. Very good. Very good. Very smart. Um, Kurt wins the argument. Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who he no was arguing con- with, no but he won. Here. <laughs> this is where no Chris contest. jumps in for, uh, for JR. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, please. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Keep you on the crypto theme a bit longer, um, just because it's topical um, that the SEC finally, after um, much hesitation and refusal, approved all of these Bitcoin ETFs, um, which are now presumably um, trading. How does that change the landscape? Because in some sense, for people who are like real crypto true believers, it seems like in some sense, some have argued this a bad development. It's basically tradfi, to use the the catch term, uh, kind of like <laughs> taking over uh, and um, assuming responsibility for uh, the crypto markets. How do you think about that trend and how does it transform the landscape or is it too soon to say? Yeah, I think from my perspective, right, you're one of the, I'll say, issues around crypto in the broader markets has, has been credibility and use, right? And so I think we're answering both of those questions to a degree with uh, a Bitcoin ETP in terms of allowing for, not to get back to the JRR favorite topic, controls right around the operation and the mechanics of, of how these are bought, sold, traded, and adjusted, but allowing a broader market to participate. So it's kind of that, I think, upward spiral we're hearing a lot in the crypto world, right? That's now going to legitimize and, and answer those credibility questions because you've got Fidelity or Vanguard or BlackRock behind it. Uh, they get there. But, you know, there's always going to be those less popular or, or more progressive views of how the crypto world should operate that kind of create that friction between, you know, unfettered, limitless and, and permissionless, uh, you know, trading and, and access uh, against that TradFi or that traditional finance view of, of the way these asset classes should operate. Yeah, I, I'll just jump in to say, look, I, I think it was coming and I think everybody knew it. So I've been 
trying not to read too much into it. I mean, my own view is that the commission's position on the spot Bitcoin ETP, right? Because there were already other Bitcoin-based ETPs out there trading. With respect to the spot, their position just wasn't defensible, right? And I think they got smacked by, you know, the DC court, court of appeals, and they realized that they, they were just going to lose this one again and again and again, right? Because if they knocked down, you know, pick your favorite issuer, they were going to, you know, challenge it. And they had to sort of give up the ghost, right? And I think that's what's what's happening here, right? So Chair Gensler swapped his vote from a no to a yes. The product is or the products were approved on a three to two vote. But what we didn't see was any of the Democratic commissioners changing their vote, right? Like I don't think that Chair Gensler was twisting their arms and saying, "Hey, this is a opportunity where the commission needs to speak with one voice." He probably said. Mm, I like you as no's because what we're signaling to the market <laughs> is that we're not totally comfortable with these products. You know, I kind of went kicking into, I've had more than one person say to me when they read uh, Chair Gensler's statement on the approval, they were like, it sounds like he went kicking and screaming. I don't disagree. So for this one, I, I don't think it's going to change the landscape for crypto regulation or ETP regulation. I, I think this was just like the writing was on the wall and they had to move on. Cool. Let's pivot a little bit. And Should from, we pivot? Let's so from, pivot. From one group of podcast hosts to others. Um, <laughs> now, we've noticed that you, you, you do have a mixed bag uh, of episodes on your, on your show, which we try to do as well. But um, we saw that you did one uh, on Mental Health Month and how lawyers and accountants mm -hmm. can best take care of themselves. And, and I, I appreciate that in particular question. because after having uh, worked with Ronan all these years, I'm very focused on mental health uh, issues. <laughs> Sit down, shut up. I think that that's... <laughs> <laughs> Not to make fun of the topic, no, but what, no, no, no. what are the, some of the key mental health challenges attorneys and accountants face in their profession? Then I'll tell you about JR. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think the episode answers any specific questions for anyone's life. Oh, so if, okay. if, if you're yeah, dealing right. with yeah. Ronan, okay. uh, maybe we'll have to do right. a yeah. sidebar okay. for yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the crux of the discussion or, or maybe the pressure on, on, a, on accountants specifically and attorneys that is shared as well is really your monetizing time, right, to a certain degree, and that the advice and your ability to serve clients relates to the amount of time you can dedicate to any one of them. You know, technology solutions aside, right, There, there's almost always more work to do. And in the environments we work in, there are metrics, especially on the accounting side, in which individuals with a higher billable hours in a year are treated more favorably or, or given promotions or, or seen in a, in a better light than others, right? And so that's kind of the demand side of the question is there – there's a perception, and, and it's been hopefully dissipating in the past few years, maybe not because of our episode, Kurt, uh, that, you know, the, <laughs> the continued application of your time to business uh, endeavors is something that, that weighs on you on the supply side, right, on the personal side of your life. And so that is really the friction that creates mental health issues, at least in my mind, is that there'll always be this tug and pull between another half hour, another conference call, another client to pick up, another sale to make, uh, especially on the consulting side, versus, you know, taking time out to to binge your favorite Netflix show or, God forbid, go outside on a walk, um, you know, and, and do something that helps recharge you. Uh, mm -hmm. So to me, right, the, those pressures are around delivery and performance and execution. I think in the episode two, Kurt, we talked a lot about how our professions are held up to a higher standard in terms of accuracy, right? And so being wrong is almost not acceptable to any degree, you know, especially on the accounting side, but as well in, in a legal analysis side. So those kind of two or three ideas all playing together create this kind of morass that we all get stuck in of, okay, well, I guess I should sit at my computer for longer. And 
Right. There's a time yeah. where that, you know, the diminishing returns there create not only worse work product, but also a worse intrinsic feeling about how you're doing and how you're applying it. So those are the ways I identify those issues. But I know, Kurt, you've got some thoughts from the legal side as well. No, it's largely the same. I mean, I think the way that we work is very similar, Chris, you know, in terms of how, again, how we monetize our time. It, this is something that's been an issue for years and years and years. But I think it's something that got much worse as a result of the pandemic and more mm. people working mm. remotely. I mean, I used to, you know, walk to the Metro, have the Metro ride. Maybe I'm checking emails, but maybe I'm listening to your podcast. Uh, and then, the you know, I'd get, I'd get the walk. <laughs> Thank you, Kurt. I'd, Good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd get the walk home and there's a, a, an element of decompression that happens when, when you're doing things like that. You know, you're driving back and forth to the office. Now I have figured out, man, that's like an extra 90 minutes I can work every day. Mm -hmm. And and probably, you know, sitting here in my office alone, and I haven't even gone to fill up my cup of coffee and bumped into my colleague down the hall, and we had a banter about our kids or the game last night or whatever. So I I think the the pandemic has made it worse. And one of the things we tried to do on that episode of our podcast was just let people know, you know, you're not the only ones experiencing this, and and there are resources available. And and absolutely, and not just lawyers and accountants, but um, their clients, I assume, too, or dealing mm-hmm. with sort of these stresses and trying to sort of figure out. But but what you said about remote work um, certainly resonates with me, too. It's not like, for those of us who are type A personalities or have always been very invested in their work, it's not like it means that you're going to be working less. It just means that theoretically, the nature of the technology is you could be working like all the time if you really wanted yeah. to. So you have to create some boundaries. Well, I think that yeah. that's an important part of the episode too, right? Is it's right size for the individual. You know, we can all look at days where, where uh, you know, any of the four of us worked until midnight and it was a great day, right? Like you're doing interesting work. You're, you're helping a, a specific client with a tough problem and you get a good result or, you know, you settle a court case or, or you have a, a great testimony, uh, you know, that appears there. If you can identify with the ways that you build yourself up and work is the way that you do that. That's a good thing, right? We're not saying put an eight, seven and a half hour cap on your day, but acknowledge when you're pushing in a way that's not filling yourself up or that's extending yourself. And again, we can all look at those days where we were till midnight and it was terrible. But if you're starting to do that every day, all the time, you know, it's going to happen once in a while. But if it happens more than once in a while, that's where you got to start considering the impact of it on your mental health. Is drinking with clients included? I think it should be. Well, you yeah. know, I but not to excess. I mean, that, there, there are other ways. I mean, try to do a little meditation every once in a while. A little bit of yoga. A little bit of other, Actually, other COVID ways to wind down. To stay at home was good for my health. <laughs> Maybe not my mental health, but definitely my physical health. Your liver health, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Liver, liver health is great. So, yeah. um you guys mentioned at the beginning of the podcast you like the IEX socks. So we're, we have some closing questions to ask you. And if you do a good job, you each if get you a pair do, of socks. And, and, if, and if not, then no it, more no socks. socks. I mean, no socks. we have to earn them <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's like going podcast. around with like, you know, like no socks on his feet. Guys, no, yeah, we would give yeah. socks hold, to fucking anybody back in <laughs> yeah. December 2020. These are now boxes and line socks. The newest. Building the brand. after. So. Right, well, we'll go we to go. Chris first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully, you got a heads up on these ones. <laughs> if you had the power, if you had the power to create a new financial holiday, what would it be called, and how would people celebrate it? Jesus, that's. I mean, we could go a couple of ways here. I'm going to take the maybe the cheesy or maybe the the, the self actualized version. I think okay. one of the biggest issues that I see with friends, family, clients, colleagues uh, today is financial literacy. 
there are mm. so many people who just don't have the background, the understanding, the time to follow, to, to manage their own finances, to think about the implications of the buying and saving decisions they're making today. So I would propose, and I'm sure no one would sign on to this because it's neither sexy nor cool, is everybody take off the third Wednesday in June for Financial Literacy Day. And everyone learn a bit about kind of personal finance, managing interest, you know, loans, savings, and and things of that nature. Because I think that would help not only celebrate the idea that we should all be a little bit more involved in the financial decisions that we're making, uh, but also help educate and, and and kind of raise, you know, have that high tide raise all boats to be in a better position to meet our financial goals over the long term. I love it. Jeez. Very Absolutely love it. Very, 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 very thoughtful. Man. So, Chris, mm-hmm. you say yes, Ronan. Yeah. Yes, Ronan. You get a pair of sucks. <laughs> yeah. All right. There you go. Oh, man. We got to work on that when you come back in three years. Yes, yeah, sir. We, got, we have new, uh, yes, more interested yes, in Ronan. socks, yeah, too, we do. since the last time we There you go. See? Yeah. See? Yeah. Now he's teasing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> if you could give a one-sentence piece of financial advice to your younger self, what would it be? And it can't be attend Financial Literacy Day. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't do anything in one sentence, either. Yeah. Uh, That's true. So I, I'll try. Uh in 2011, buy Bitcoin at ah, 25 a coin. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> that works. Kurt, my man. Yeah, there you go. Yes, Ronan. You get a pair of socks. <laughs> <laughs> this is our new bit. I love it. We have like hot sauce too. We can yeah. give it a, I, the hot sauce is really good. good. I got good, some yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. The hottest one though, will it will. But now we also have like a, a truffle hot sauce, which I think is really pretty good. Yeah, we but we, we just put our IEX logo on that. We didn't actually have oh, that one well, made. Okay, well, the fine. previous ones we had made. Ronan makes his own hot sauce, yep. oddly enough. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, which I... It's very good. Yeah, we'll get some of that. In the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to come up with a wacko question for you guys if they want Ronan's hot sauce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'll be that'll be for the next time. That'll yeah. be a big challenge. Well, you guys have been once again great guests. We appreciate you joining us. Absolutely, and we hope that you, uh, w- once you forget about this podcast, um, that we, uh, you know, in a few years or even even sooner than that, that you yeah. will come back. You'll consider coming back. Mm-hmm. We appreciate oh. it. We will. I'll call you when this pair of socks wears out. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Amazing. fellas. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Are you a diehard boxer or liner, or just a fair weather fan? No judgments. I know how annoying JR's Irish accent can be. Either way, we want to hear from you on our new Boxes and Lines listener survey to find out what you think about the show, give input on future episodes, guests, and more. We'll take it back to our survey counter thingy machine and consider all of your inputs as we plan our 2024 season. You can find the survey at iex.getfeedback.com slash boxesandlines. And don't worry, there's something in it for you. That's my drum roll. JR could probably do it better. You get a pair of socks. That's right. Take the survey. We'll send you a pair of our coveted box and line socks while supplies last in a new limited edition print. How's that for listener appreciation? So take the survey, tell us what you think, and thanks for listening. Again, that's iex.getfeedback.com slash boxes and lines. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.